Hi, everyone. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. Season four of the Business Integrity School is sponsored by J.B. Hunt Transport Services, Inc. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Biz, the Business Integrity School. And today, I am really super excited to tell you that I have a very old colleague and friend who's with me here today and not old in terms of age. I've just known him for a long time. Andy Rubin, it's so nice to see you again. How are you? Oh, my gosh, great. And thank you for having me. It is awesome. Looking forward to it. Well, this is going to be a fabulous conversation for all of you out there. As you know, this season is about all things ESG. And let me tell you a little bit about Andy and his company, and then we'll jump right into the questions. Andy, who is the founder and CEO of a company uh, called Trove, and that's the leading white label platform for brands that are now starting to realize that they need to control their secondary markets. And there's really cool brands he partners with. Um, he partners with companies like Patagonia and Lululemon and Eileen Fisher and others and more to come. So you'll for sure want to check out that website. But let me tell you a little bit about Andy. I got to know Andy at Walmart where he was the company's first chief sustainability officer. He um, also was the recipient of the Sam and Walton Entrepreneur of the Year Award, which for those of you who don't know is Walmart's highest honor. He went on from that role and did a whole bunch of other things, including overseeing Walmart's global, global e-commerce strategy. And I think that may have been Andy where you got the bug to stay out where you are now in California and do fun things like start this really cool company. But um, thank you again for being here today. Why don't you start by telling the audience a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are doing what it is you're doing today? Sure. Um, it's a big question. I never expected to be in a business. I never expected to be in business, frankly, as an engineer. Got a, a first job with Procter & Gamble and fell in love with the people aspects of business. Spent years consulting where Walmart um, was a company I got to know and got the opportunity to join Walmart, which I'm, I'm really a believer through all of this that um, I think there's some people who believe that you know your whole career and it maps out just like your plan. You've got it on paper and you've got your bullet points and other people, including myself, that believe that you take one step and then that step allows you to see around a corner you would have never imagined. And every step of my journey inside Walmart um, was like that. I started in corporate strategy and sustainability, unbeknownst to me, um, became, became a topic. And I had the right place and timing to get to be involved in that. And then private brands and then e-commerce. Mm -hmm. And then left to start what's now Trove. And the experience along the way is everything from what I'm able to do now. Yeah. And that's all I see it as very connected. 
Yeah. And you kind of woven those pieces together. And um, I think it's just really valuable for the audience to hear that because not all careers are linear. In fact, I would say very few are. A lot of them are, you know, back and forth. And to your point, you take one step and it leads you here and you focus more on competencies that you're building along the way. And then you find yourself in positions doing jobs or starting companies like Trove that you never could have imagined when you got out of school. Right. So that's, that's really cool. So, so before we jump in and talk about Trove, let's just talk about the topic like ESG. It seems like environmental and social and governance related issues for corporations have taken a real kind of center stage seat. And you mentioned in your intro that, you know, sustainability was part of your job at Walmart, but you didn't realize it was going to kind of become a thing at Walmart back in the day in the early 2000s. And now it seems like it is front and center for all companies. Do you think it's here to stay front and center And if so, what do you think was the tipping point? What has caused it to take this position of prominence that it has today? It's front and center because it's front and center for society. Business is always in the context of that society. And there are challenges that we as a, there are challenges that people on the planet are increasingly facing. And one of the places that we look for answers, you know, we look to, um, we look to companies. And so companies, if they are to stay relevant and continue to add the value that they can add to, to all of us are going to, um, are going to be figuring this out. It is in the forefront right now because it is becoming more, um, more obvious that these things need to be dealt with. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, I, I don't, um, there have been moments before where it's been more prominent and less prominent. Right. I think it had a moment in the nineties that it was, you know, there was back to the Walmart days, there was, you know, a committee that Mr. Sam formed with Hillary Clinton on the board and others, right. That when I, when I had the right timing of being in sustainability in 2004, that a lot of, a lot of um, suppliers reminded me of even mm-hmm. sent me some early notes from those time periods. And then it, you know, it went into the background and then came back up. And so I think that there is, it can ebb and flow, but ultimately I've seen it as, um, as a much broader construct that if you are really thinking about the big picture, you're thinking about these topics. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean you can always figure out, it doesn't mean you can always execute on everything right now. It often then requires coming back to where you are now and figuring out the way to get from there back to here. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think there was a tipping point that caused it to rise in prominence again right now? There are a few tipping points. Um, the BlackRock letter that Larry Fink said, and Larry Fink, who is the CEO of BlackRock, which is oh. um, a massive financial institution, sent a letter that I believe was a shot around the world. It was one of many, but the letter basically was, was realizing that businesses from a risk perspective that were not looking at ESG were taking on undue risk on behalf of shareholders. And what was so interesting about that was the frame. He was not talking about polar bears in the Arctic or maple syrup farmers. He was talking about business as an entity and the job of a board of directors. Right. And, his, and so there are other things that have followed. Um, what just happened with Engine One and the Exxon board mm-hmm. followed the same pattern. Yep. Um, what... Um, so there, there are many of these, but I think that this shift has occurred from this being a nice to have to in the context of what a board of directors oversees, which is really the, what is the plan, who is the management, and what is the appropriate growth and level of risk 
the right. professional management take on have realized that this is, this is now part of that discussion because it is a risk that corporate entities are taking on, benotes to them or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, it is a risk. And if they don't manage it, then it will end up managing them. Absolutely. And if the Exxon, um, Engine wanted Exxon, I thought was fascinating because the, the shareholder resolution was not about the need for something. It was about the it was about the oversight of was management doing their job on behalf of the company and the shareholders. Mm, yeah. A very different framing than 10 years ago about the things that we need to be doing because they're good for everybody. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's really the key to this ESG movement, if you will. You know, mm -hmm. CSR back in the day, if it was, you know, sometimes some companies called called it that, or even sustainability, it was what you just said, doing some good things, which was great. But 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 now ESG is talking about core aspects of your business. Yep. And how is what your core business plan, uh, how is that also being kind to the environment? How is it taking into account all of the social issues? And what are you doing from a governance sure. perspective? So it's kind of baked in as opposed to here's kind of our business, but here's what we do on the side, right? And if um, it's on the side, if it's on the side, it is always going to be, it's always going to be um, sidelined. It's always going to play right. second to the main priority. Yeah. And the challenge with that is that business is such an incredible force in the world. One of the most incredible yes. that um, capitalism in general, absolutely incredible. And if we really care about the future of society and what we've got to get done right now, we better use everything that business is capable of. Yeah. So why would we ever want to neuter what a business is good at and not bring the full bear of what business can really do? Yeah. Which means there's going to be a role for business. There's a role for society and there's a role for government. That's right. And business should think about how to be better business and business to be a better business is where the opportunity exists. So, so yeah. This yeah. is getting into the heart of the podcast. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So it brings us right to what you're doing now, which is true business being a better business. So I, I, you have a lot of things to be really proud of right now with this company. I want you to tell us a little bit about the journey, but um, you've just raised a bunch of money and a series D funding and 77.5 million, I believe. And I think overall you've raised like $122.5 million. So you are really, you know, blowing and going and doing some great stuff to make business better. But before we go too far, tell everybody a little bit about Trove and how long you've yeah. been at it. Has it been like nine years or something like that? Yeah. So nine years ago, I realized that I realized that that commerce or retail today was very focused on new items. But what we all focused on was not the new graphic calculator. It was a graphic calculator for my son or daughter in trigonometry because it's a graphic calculator. Whether or not that was a new calculator was, you know, was kind of ancillary as long as it was the right calculator and it worked. And so for retail and brands really to serve customers, to be more customer centric, this would just make sense. We're going to light up and utilize all these hundreds of millions of items that are in our closets. In fact, our closets would become the world's biggest and underutilized warehouse ever, right? They are, they're there. These items have already been made. And so I realized that years ago, um, left to start um, what was, you know, called Yertle at the time, which was a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace to address this and serve this need, right? To make use of the things all around us, save money, save resources, um, improve people's lives. I learned in that experience um, 
that it was bigger than I thought, more valuable than I thought. And I also realized that there was way too much friction to really change the way we do things. Mm. And that the right way in was not a peer-to-peer marketplace as it was originally conceived when it was called Yertle. But this was going to happen through brands because brands have created the system that we're in now. We trust brands. We love brands. Brands have stores like the Patagonia store that make it easy for me to walk in with my jacket. Brands have so much going for them. And some brands, the brands that produce incredibly high quality products would get more longevity out of their products in a world where we, where we kept these items in use. Mm. In fact, there was just a report from Business of Fashion that said that only 20% of the value was being garnered in the first time an item was sold. So the first time oh. Lululemon sells a pair of yoga pants, that's 20% of the value of the item that they've spent eight to 10 years with material research and product to invent and produce. Uh-huh. And then the next 80% either sits idle or is captured by the real real. Why wouldn't Lululemon, who's done all the work to produce that item, get the next 80%? Why would it settle in my closet? So that by focusing on the best brands, that the best brands could actually gain market share by doing this. And why wouldn't they? Because it's hard. So we pivoted the business five years ago to support brands who see this opportunity through a platform that essentially does all of the technology backbone and all the logistics that enables them to make the full use of the items they produce. And therefore, as those brands start to do this, my view and change in the world is that we just all expect it. So I look forward mm-hmm. to the moment, gosh, 20, 20 years from now, and someone's gonna say, you worked on what? Of course, <laughs> when I'm done with the Patagonia, I bring it back to the store. What did you used to do with it? And I will sadly admit that what I used to do with it is just have it sit old and dirty in my closet, nothing. Yeah. And they'll go, why would you do that? Yeah. And I'll say, because oh, we didn't, we just, I, I don't know. Like we just, we just bought things, but we didn't think about the true value they can have when we're no longer using them. Yeah. And so it's how I see our role and the opportunity to really support brands as the future winner of this space. So what you just described is the word that folks use for that now, kind of the circular retail economy. In other words, it isn't just used once, it's used, I mean, how many, how many times can it be? What, what if somebody like takes it back to Patagonia now and, and they, now they're done using it for the second or third time, how many times do they keep taking it back? Why would you only, if Patagonia, why would you only sell an item once when you can sell it seven times? Yeah. Nine is better than seven. 12 yeah. is better than nine. Yeah. And the idea, like when you think about how we view retail, final margin, why? Yeah. Right? Like initial margin, got it. Why not sell it three more times? Yeah. Um, so yeah. no, it's absolutely right. And it's right for not just the items that are well-produced, but the items that have um, demand. Yeah. in the aftermarket. Yeah. So when, you know, when we talk, when I talk to any college student about Lululemon, I'm immediately, I've lost the attention because everyone <laughs> wants to know where they can go find a pair of Lululemon yoga pants for half the price. Right, That's right, awesome. right, right, right. Okay. But Andy, I got to ask you a question. So isn't one of the roadblocks that, that Trove will face is the stigma of resale? I mean, like, not no are consumers um, really was, wanting to go buy used goods. Yes, and it's one of the things that um, it, it's very generational. That would be like what I would challenge that thought is there would have been a moment 
boy, 10 years ago, I mean, 15, for sure 15, but I bet 10. There'd have been a moment 10 years ago that I would have told you, you would have willfully pulled out your phone and stepped into a stranger's car to get to where you're going. And you would have said, what? No, what? I'll never do that. Right. And then by the way, you're gonna show up at somebody else's apartment and you're gonna stay there like it's a hotel, <laughs> right? And you'd say, what? That is insane. And of course, like we, this is, um, we think these things are set in stone yeah. and they are not whatsoever. What is set, what is, I didn't say what's set in stone, but what is consistent is that it's not personal for us as customers. We want better items. We want to like them more. We love new stuff. We want to save money. We want it to be easy, yeah. right? Like where it comes from, if today it comes from my phone and yesterday it came from a store and before it came from someone on, a, on you know, the Silk Road, it, it's the same equation. Yeah. And what we want is we want more value for what we're doing and yeah. a better experience. We want it to be easy. Yeah, and so, yeah. You know, so you think it won't matter. That's interesting. Absolutely. And with younger customers and what we tend to see from the brands we work with, the customers who buy used tend to be on average 15 to 20 years younger mm. in the core demographic of the brands. Really? So Arterix is one of the brands we work with. Super young customer who wants, I mean, if anyone, if any of the listeners here have worn Arterix, it's just, it's beautiful. This stuff's yeah. beautiful, Yeah. but it's expensive. Because yeah. it's really well made. And yeah. if you want Arteryx, you can save up for a few years and or you could find used Arteryx. That used to be very difficult. Mm -hmm. When you can buy it from Arteryx, game on. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I look outside, both of, both of the cars that we own, they're pre-certified. They're great. And we got them from the dealer that gave me the same great coffee and donuts. They knew everything about the car. Yeah, yeah. How interesting. Okay, but you mentioned generational. So let me ask you another question about that and, and, and the business model, because I love the whole idea, but another potential roadblock. So let's talk about the next one. Generational, like they're, they're younger. They like this fashion forward stuff. I mean, they're all about the latest trends. And if you're doing resale of clothing items, isn't that kind of the, just the, the, the opposite of fashion forward? I mean, how do you capture the younger generation who wants fashion forward when you're reselling items that have already been, you know, out there or fashion forward five years ago? There is a, there is a relatively small group of people who is, I will only wear the ready to wear designer from this season. And I wouldn't be caught the one from last year. Yeah. The majority of us, and I'm in this group, Really appreciate it. I, I, turns out I love Tom Ford. He's an incredible <laughs> designer. Yeah. And when I get to experience what a Tom Ford button, button down shirt is to wear, I don't know why I ever go back to Banana Republic or J. Crew ever again. Yeah. Yeah. And so what most of us appreciate is better items, aspirational brands like a Patagonia and Arcteryx, um, a Lululemon instead of a pair of Target yoga pants. We want, um, we want things that we aspire to. And it's mm -hmm. not every item, but they're pieces that um, we now have access to that we're excited about. And typically what we find is that while the customer who buys used tends to be 10 to 20 years younger, the customer who is handing back that piece is a core customer. Mm -hmm. So that customer is of the kind of, you know, 40 to 60 year old person like myself who's got four to five Patagonias, but is wearing two. Mm -hmm. And I've accumulated them over the years. 
my kids never used to wear Patagonia because they grow every year and Patagonia is expensive. Right, right. But now they both do. And every year we walk back in, we hand, we in the store, which you can do at any Patagonia right now. If it says Patagonia, you walk into a store, you hand back, we hand back our two kids' jackets. They hand us a gift card. So easy. We take the gift card in store, online. We get them the next year's, the next year's fit, the next year's size. They love it. They have a better jacket. They have a story that's better than new. They've got a story about where the jacket came from. Patagonia stands behind it. It's clean. It's awesome. And the world does not need to produce a bunch of extra jackets so they can right. sit in my closet. Right. That is, that is, it's again, 20 years from now, it's going to be amazing that we ever did the things. And we, we got here based on a post-World War II set of drivers that has created, it's brought a billion people out of extreme poverty. It's been incredible. But we are now moving into the next S curve where the value that we are creating has been and still does predominantly come from economies of scale mm-hmm. of production and distribution. Mm-hmm. That is shifting from that to an S curve that is about asset utilization and getting more out of the products we've made. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I would agree with you on that. And I think that um, it's more about the story. You said that a few minutes ago. I mean, the customers today, really consumers really want to know what, what's the story, the story behind the recipe or the story behind the piece of clothing. So that's, that's cool. Well, let's talk for a minute about Trove's own um, footprint, if you will. So yeah. the money that you've raised, um, I understand you're going to be using it to expand operations, which is really exciting, I think. Uh, but that with that will come a larger footprint for yourself. So how do you mm-hmm. think about Trove's own footprint in the world? And how do you how do you focus on minimizing that while at the same time trying to expand? You know, I realized this in the early days in sustainability at Walmart, because we did a, I mean, Walmart's got a pretty large footprint and not, not even in terms of size, but just the things that in the world are kind of touched or seen. And when you look at the entire footprint, a lot of it comes back to ag, agriculture. It comes back to food. It comes back to textiles. They're both ag. And if we can, you know, on average, when, a, when we all make cho- a choice to buy a used pair of yoga pants versus mm-hmm. new, Mm-hmm. It's a footprint savings of between 40 and 60%. Depending on how much of that displaces a new item that would have been bought, uh-huh. it could be more. What the, what the majority of us have been focused on previously is making items less bad. So we will take a pair of yoga pants and we will work on optimizing the cutting patterns, the sewing waste. The, so we work tirelessly to make an item one to 2% less bad. Every two to three years, we pat ourselves on the back. There is no amount of math to make 150 billion items we produce every year for 7 billion humans less bad enough to deal with the challenge. So one of the bullets, not the silver bullet, not the be all end all answer, but one of the bullets is let's get three times the amount of use out of every item we've just made. So let's not just make a footprint or a supply chain three to 4% less bad. Let's eliminate it 3x from what we just produced. Let's eliminate three, three entire supply chain use cases yeah. by taking a Patagonia and having that item go through three more owners that it wouldn't have gone through and yeah. replace three new items. That's interesting to me. Yeah. So 
we measure everything about our own footprint. We measure everything about the resource intensity of taking an item back, of the shipping, right. of the cleaning, all of it. And it all pales in comparison to making that item in the first place. That's a really, that's a new, that's a new kind of construct, a new way to think about it, right? So that's, uh, that's useful. It's important. And I, sometimes I come across ESG strategies that I think can be misplaced. Mm -hmm. um, one of them that was from a, um, one of the big shipping companies that had a bit of a, a bit of a concern on their footprint, right? Which is about how much they move items. It could be that moving items around is the best thing we could do for a smaller footprint, but their role was gonna to be to take all of these items, move them from our closets and get them to the next person. Yeah. They are no longer then, they no longer then in that case should be ashamed of moving things around. They should be proud of it. Yeah. So I think we've gotta be careful back to the broader business conversation that we look at this system. Yeah, right. And we realize that shipping is not bad because it's shipping. R right, right. It depends on what it what it what is being shipped and for what purpose, and not just saying shipping is bad. Yeah, that's, that's exactly that's, right. Look at it. All right, couple other questions. There are so many different frameworks out there right now for measurement of, of ESG, and so do are are you dealing with sort of like when, you know, when you're a Walmart, a retailer, and you're going into the factories and there's all the different standards that, you know, the factories have to comply with. Are you faced with that, with all of your customers and the different kind of ESG rating metrics and measures that they're all trying to attain? Or are you starting to see some rationalization and thinning of the, of the frameworks? And um, we are seeing we're definitely seeing more focus on it. Some of the investors that came into this lading funding round that you mentioned, um, we had more questions about our own footprint and our mm. measurement of that footprint and our actions than I've ever had before. I bet. Um, and that was wildly encouraging. So we are seeing some continuity. I think that the work in the UN has been helpful. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think that it is also very difficult, if not impossible, and I'm not sure, but it's very difficult, certainly, for an outside organization to measure how good a company is with a statement like that or how well a company is doing. Mm. Um, looking at kind of transactional or ad hoc transactional metrics, because it's very hard to not miss kind of the forest through the trees of what's yeah. being measured. Yeah. And that's a very difficult thing to do. Will the metrics to measure this one element of a business ever get good enough to really assess that? Maybe, yeah. but in the end, it's gotta be assessed more holistically. Um, I like the metrics right now because they're creating focus. Mm -hmm. I don't like the metrics. They think that they're actually gonna figure out the perfect metrics so we can all drive that. Yeah. Business has one metric right now, which is actually creating value in the world. Right. When business creates more value in the world and value in the world, if you wanna think about it right this minute, um, involves a certain set of things. When you want to think about it in the long-term sense of what it's going to mean in a year, in two and three years, you better be looking at the longer-term, bigger context. Mm -hmm. That's going to include ESG. Mm -hmm. And if you hire the people who are good at doing that, they're going to be the, good at the people, they're going to be the same people who are good at figuring out the near-term value as well. Yeah. So every time that we communicate a dollar sign as Trove with our partners, with customers, we also think about the jobs and the upward mobility. We also think about the CO2. We think about the waste. We're talking about the business and the way to measure the business. Yeah. But when you're really thinking about that, those metrics go together 
they um, they often can't be parsed to understand what's going on. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. It's a it's certainly a very complex issue, I think, and um, uh, it it if you don't really understand it the way you were just talking about, you can oversimplify it in a way that then it becomes meaningless in terms of trying to really figure out, you know, what are you, what are you, what are we really after here? And if you just look at the core measurements, like you were saying, as opposed to the bigger picture, you kind of do lose it. You know, you're in the trees and you, you kind of miss seeing the whole forest and, and what you're after. So we'll have it's, to see how that goes. It's definitely a topic and the very practical advice I would give. And I think this is how it, it, it probably needs to be viewed by many is no, no one should take their eye off the longer picture of where the value is really being created and make sure that these things are all connected. At the same time, it's important to continue to um, answer the questions in the surveys Yeah. as we make the survey questions better. Yeah, I would agree. So it is both. It is both. It is both. Well, Andy, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for answering a bunch of hard questions. And now I have a really easy one for you, but a really fun one. And I think it'll be instructive for the audience. For somebody who wants to just learn a little bit more about this whole topic of ESG or the circular retail economy or, or anything in that bucket, what would you recommend as a good book or a good maybe podcast or a, a good documentary? Do you have anything on comes top of mind for you? Still the, um, the book that one of the questions that, you know, I, I didn't know David Brower from the Sierra Club, but um, people close to me didn't know him. One of the questions he'd always ask is what bit you? Which is like what? What kind of sparked right. the curiosity that had you go down the the rabbit hole? Yeah. Um, for me, it was Paul Hawkins' book, Ecology of Commerce. Oh. And still to this day, um, that book is was eye opening for me. It was the start of the rabbit hole for me uh -huh. of how could I not have been thinking about these things? And so right. that that remains. What what I would say is the curiosity deeper into how things work is regardless of the, regardless if it's a factory, a supply chain, a product, a service, just keep going deeper into mm -hmm. why things are the way they are and how mm -hmm. to think about them in a broader context. And in every one of these, no matter how much better things have gotten and how good business is today, it's one one thousandth of what it could be. Yeah. And so that just inspires the openness and the creativity of the opportunity is to figure out ways to make it better. And if you're really going to figure out ways to add value and make it better, a lens toward broader sustainability is a really important lens to think big enough. Yeah, I would agree. Well, that's a great recommendation. Thank you again for your time. This has been a, an incredible episode and it's just really great to see you again. So thanks so much, Andy. I really appreciate it. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Totally fun. <laughs> it's been great. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S, which stands for The Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.